Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in this week. We have a really important topic to cover, and our guest today is just perfectly suited to help us sort all of this out. We're going to be talking about PFAS and drinking water and what every American should know about that. We are joined today by Sydney Evans. She's a science analyst with the Environmental Working Group. Uh, Sydney has a bachelor's in chemistry, a master's in public health, and she has got a lot of great information to share with us today. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Sydney. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You bet. Well, let's start at the very beginning. What are PFAS chemicals and for what purposes are they used? So most people know PFAS as Teflon or Scotchgard chemicals, Um, but really PFAS is actually the name of a family of chemicals. It stands for per or polyfluoroalkyl substances is one of many names. Um, There are thousands of chemicals in this family. Uh, Many of them, I think it's around 600 different chemicals, are used for either industrial or commercial purposes. They are synthetic, they're man-made, and we call them forever chemicals because really once they're in the environment they don't break down wow and and what are some of the things that they're used for like you said in industrial purposes what are some of those Sure. So uh, a lot of them they're going to serve as uh, intermediate so um, some of these like People might know the best or PFOA and PFOS, which were originally used to make Teflon. PFOS was an ingredient in 3M Scotchgard. So they can either be intermediates or used in end products. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Now, let's talk about the impact that these chemicals have on human health. That's really at the crux of why we care about what's going on here. Right. The thing with these PFAS compounds is that they have effects on human health at very, very low concentrations, and they can cause a wide range of health harms. Um, We know this from the studies of animals and also from uh, previous events of contamination. A DuPont plant that contaminated the drinking water of around 70,000 people were studied, um, and we we were able to, um, we being, uh, you know, the science community, not EWG, um, studied uh, these people and um, found links to a lot of adverse health effects. So they found links to a number of cancers, uh, low birth weight for babies, a hormone disruption, even increased cholesterol levels and weight gain, children and adults. Um, And uh, more recently, there's been links to um, the reduced effectiveness of vaccines and weakened childhood immunity, which is, of course, very concerning. Wow, that is concerning. And, you know, I've been looking at various sites um, that talk about this, but I tend to go for some of the most credible when I can. And so, you know, for our listeners who are looking for information they can trust about human health, I'd go to the Centers for Disease Control. The CDC has a lot of information on their their website. I I had to laugh because my own county public health website website has nothing about it, even though we live in an area where uh, there's quite a bit of contamination, but that's for another show. Uh, So, Sydney, here's the thing. These chemicals are so ubiquitous, for lack of a better word, that they're 
already in most people's bodies. So why is it so worrisome that these chemicals are showing up in high levels of drinking water? I mean, if we're already exposed, then, you know, why should people be concerned about it in their drinking water? Right. So there's three main reasons that we're concerned. Um, one is, of course, the health harm. And what we see is not taking a, a sip of water and then having some of these health effects the next day. It's, it's these low-dose exposures over long term. So over a lifetime of drinking water contaminated by PFAS at low levels, that's when it's going to exert these toxic effects. Or um, for particularly sensitive populations like uh, pregnant women and babies, um, you're going to see those effects uh, even when you've already been exposed because what happens is um, these are forever chemicals. Not only do they basically not break down in the environment, they're around to stay unless they are uh, physically removed by us, by treatment techniques that we have. Um, they're not going to naturally break down. They also build up. So by continuing to drink water or be exposed to sources of PFAS, it's possible to build up that concentration to higher than the levels that's actually in the drinking water. Um, and then for the, for the last reason is that it's, like I mentioned, it's basically irreversible. So by continuing to um, allow these chemicals into the environment by discharging more from industrial processes by allowing it to maintain in the environment, that exposure is continuing, which presents uh, heightened health risks. Mm, Boy, thank you for that. So if our listeners are wondering if they have PFAS in their drinking water and they don't know, how can they find out? So EWG actually has been mapping the pollution to make sure that everyone can find out the information that's out there and see where some of these contamination sites are. And that's available at EWG.org. So that is regularly updated with contamination sites like industrial plants and dumps, military air bases, civilian airports, firefighting sites. Um, And uh, we also have in there the PFAS pollution of tap water for people at this point Uh, PFAS has been found in 49 states, Um, and it's just a matter of where we look. The more we look for it, the more we're finding. Um, So we really want people to know that this is out there, that we continue to find it, and they can get that information um, in that map. There's also a little bit of information. EWG publishes uh, the EWG tap water database that collects the testing information from utilities. Now, this isn't an exhaustive source of data, and I really want to iterate that uh, no information or a non-detect does not mean no PFAS. Um, One part per trillion, which is one drop of water in 20 Olympic swimming pools. These are in tiny, 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 tiny amounts that can cause these health effects. Um, But previous testing that was looking for just a small number of these compounds um, in in just a handful of water utilities, it wasn't detecting the PFAS at that low level. So just when those tests come back as a non-detect, that doesn't mean it wasn't there. It just means it was below the limit of detection for that test. There was actually a case where a lab that conducted tests for EPA they reanalyzed their older findings and older water samples and estimated that 10 times as many water samples would have been contaminated. It was just at concentrations below the reporting level. So I definitely encourage people to check out the map and check out the tap water database to see if there is information in there. Um, but I don't want anyone to get a false sense of security if they don't find it because there's just so much we don't know about the contamination. Mm-hmm. You know, 
these days the word crisis is used an awful lot. <laughs> There's all kinds of crises that we're you know, supposed to pay attention to. And it's really hard for everyday people to respond appropriately to so many simultaneous crises. Help us understand why PFAS in our drinking water is considered a crisis. Sure. So I completely understand that it is exhausting sometimes when you hear about all of these different issues, Um, but that doesn't mean these issues are going away. We want people to know this is a crisis because the more we look for PFAS, the more we're finding it. All of the samples, all of the areas where um, PFAS has been tested for, where there's a a, um, sufficient level of detection for the lab test, um, the more we're finding it. Uh, All of these tests are coming back with at least small levels of PFAS, but yet they're still at levels because it's such um, a potent chemical as far as the health effects go. Uh, it's still presenting risks even at these levels. So it's, uh, it's not breaking down naturally either. So when we're finding it, um, it, we can't just wait for it to go away on its own. It's going to just continue to spread. Uh, and it's, of course, linked to a number of these serious health risks. So more and more people are being exposed. There's probably a lot of people who are being exposed and don't know it. Um, and it's going to be a, uh, an issue that's with us for a long time until we can really take action on it. So that's why we consider it a crisis. Well, and I think too, you know, I'm personally, I'm a mom of three. My kids are quote unquote adults now, you know, I mean, they're, they're older and but, you know, but but had I known or for for young families who are just starting their families, children are so vulnerable. And considering that PFAS is a bio, you know, bioaccumulative persistent uh, chemical, the younger that you experience this exposure, the longer that stuff sits in your body and the longer it has to you know, cause these detrimental health effects. And so I really feel like, you know, for children's sake, for people who consider themselves child advocates, this is a really important issue if for no other reason than, you know, they're completely counting on us. <laughs> they're so vulnerable, you know, and and that's something that, that resonates with me personally. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what the federal government is doing about PFAS. I mean, really, the short answer is almost nothing. Um, I want people to understand that, you know, we're calling this a crisis. A lot of people are being exposed. There are health effects to this um, potent, uh, you know, chemical. And yet there are no federal limits for PFAS in drinking water. There's no nationwide requirement for the testing of drinking water. Um, EPA has published a guideline level of 70 parts per trillion for PFOA and PFOS, just two PFAS compounds alone. And they're nowhere near what experts consider to be protective of health, which, as I may have mentioned, is around one part per trillion. So it's crazy that in almost two decades since the beginning of all of this, when this issue first came to light, the EPA has taken only the most feeble steps towards setting legal limits. Um, What we really need is a three-part approach. We need to report PFAS releases. We need to reduce PFAS discharges because PFAS is still being used. It's still being discharged into the air and into the water. It's still being used, even though we know all of this information about it. And then, of course, we need to remediate um, the legacy PFAS pollution. What's in the environment is staying there until we do something about it. And and just really quickly, before we go to commercial break, I mean, is there the technology to do that, 
to remediate? Sure. Yeah, um, it's still something that needs a lot of research, especially when you're looking at tap water and filtration technologies, what the options are at the treatment plants. There's still a lot ongoing because uh, those legacy compounds, the older ones, the PFOA and PFOS, have been studied a little more extensively. But in light of the information, a lot of companies have started generating uh, new compounds and new intermediaries. So that's where you get this huge number of compounds. I think it's around 600 that are in regular use, and we really don't know uh, necessarily what the most effective technology is for those. So there's a lot we don't know, which is why we need to turn off the tap until we can figure out how to protect ourselves from these compounds. Cut off the source. I couldn't agree more. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Sydney Evans from the Environmental Working Group, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Sydney Evans. She's a science analyst with the Environmental Working Group. We're talking about PFAS in drinking water. You may have seen some headlines popping up uh, in between all the impeachment hearing uh, headlines that we're inundated with. But PFAS in the drinking water is a big deal. It's been found in 49 of our 50 states, um, and it's it's 
very detrimental to human health. And we care about this a lot on Go Green Radio. So we're covering it with one of our favorite groups, the Environmental Working Group. They have such great experts. Before we went to break, Cindy, we were talking about what the federal government has and more relevantly what they have not done about PFAS. And just yesterday, some of the key PFAS reform provisions um, were found to be in jeopardy. And I wanted you to just touch on that for a moment. Sure. So that was part of the National Defense Authorization Act, which has to be passed. Um, Originally, there were uh, a few provisions in there that would really help in um, stemming the flow of PFAS and cleaning up this this contamination and ending this crisis. Um, Still in there, uh, some important parts are expanding monitoring for PFAS in groundwater and tap water. Um, A lot of the contamination we just don't know about because it hasn't been tested yet or it hasn't been tested with a low enough limit of detection because these compounds are so uh, potent even at really, really small concentrations. Um, It also, uh, as it stands, nothing is official or passed yet, but as it stands uh, in there would be a requirement for reporting of of PFAS releases by manufacturers, so that would be great. Um, But more important is, is the part that's still being left out. So restricting PFAS discharges into drinking water supplies, there are no restrictions on discharges of these chemicals in into our water. Um, it would also, we want uh, to require utilities to reduce PFAS in tap water. So even if some water systems are testing for it, they're not obligated to remove or reduce it um, to any particular level. Uh, and of course, designating PFAS as a hazardous substance is something that we'd like to see that's not currently in this, uh, in this act. Um, that way it would be subject to some more stringent requirements and regulations. Um, so that's something that's underway. Uh, we'll, you know, in the end, we'll see where that goes, but nothing's official yet. Thank you for that. So in the absence of federal action, so many times state governments have to do this, and they are when it comes to dealing with PFAS and drinking water. Talk to us about the action that some states are taking to address PFAS in their drinking water. Sure. So, as I mentioned, um, there aren't any legal limits at the federal level for PFAS. EPA has solely published a guideline level of 70 parts per trillion. But what science suggests is the health-based limit, which would be protective uh, of the population, is around one part per trillion. So, some states, in you know, in in light of the fact that the federal government isn't stepping up to protect people, they've begun to review this evidence and set their own guidance levels or even maximum contaminant levels for water uh, for PFOA, for PFAS, and another of a number of other PFAS compounds. Um, so a few examples, uh, Vermont adopted a legal limit of 20 parts per trillion for both PFOA and PFAS and groundwater, uh, another level for tap water. Uh, Minnesota has set some advisory levels that are lower than the EPA's, and um, I think it was November, New Jersey accepted um, state scientists' recommendations for legal limits of 14 parts per trillion for PFOA and 13 um, for another fluorinated chemical, PFNA. 
I know they're expected to, to go into effect a bit later. Um, and something I want to kind of note on is when you see the, the map that I mentioned earlier, EWG has a map of all of the known contamination sites and water tests um, that people can check out. It's an interactive map with a lot of information. Um, but on there, you'll see that uh, New Jersey and a handful of other states have uh, a ton of sites, right? They have a lot of dots compared mm-hmm. to the other states. And that's because they're starting to enforce these uh, limits and these actions, these monitoring requirements. Um, And that kind of goes back to what we need to know about monitoring. But um, while these states are trying to take steps to protect people, which is a fantastic effort in and of itself, a patchwork of state standards is just, it's not equitable, it's not fair, because that means drinking water in New Jersey will be subject to the nation's strictest legal limit for PFOA, but just across the state line, there will be no legal limit, uh, and just the advisory level from the EPA, which is a lot higher than the New Jersey standard. Well, and what's tough about that is water flows. I mean, if you watch Water Wars, uh, you know, just sticking to the East Coast, I mean, there are downstate states that sue their upstate neighbors all the time for stuff that flows from one state to the other into their water. Um, We see this with agricultural runoff, you know, byproducts and all kinds of things. Um, And so, you know, as you mentioned, if the state, you know, upstate from a state with great standards has no such standards, their dirty water flows right into the state that uh, the water flows into. So that does make it really tough. And yet, um, I think it's great that we have states that are, are getting out there and it, you know, being the tail that wags the, the dog sometimes. Um, Absolutely. So talk, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that um, kind of on, on that line, there are other actions being taken by some states to try and address the sources of the contamination, because that's really what we need to be doing, right? I yes. mean, ultimately, we're going to have to clean up some of the contamination, but addressing it at the tap, uh, at the source, is what we need to do. And so um, a few states uh, have tried to do that. So Minnesota actually was one. Um, they uh, um, had a, a settlement with 3M, actually, one of the primary users of these compounds in a, a lawsuit, um, because the company was knowingly contaminating groundwater with PFO and PFOS, and Around the same time, uh, the state of Ohio sued DuPont and Comores for uh, PFOA contamination from the West Virginia Teflon plant, which, of course, is on the Ohio River. And it, it just goes back into, you know, where this is being discharged and water flows, and um, which is why it's become such an issue because it doesn't break down. So it just continues to go through all the water systems. And it's mm-hmm. really unfortunate. But um, it is good to see those, those states starting to take action. I love it. And and here's the thing. I can't imagine that it's just the manufacturers of these chemicals that are responsible for it going into the groundwater. I mean, there's a lot of companies that buy these chemicals and use them for things. Um, and so I'm just wondering, t- talk to us about what we know about how PFAS chemicals are getting into the groundwater. I mean, obviously, if you're downstream from a DuPont plant, like the West Virginia case, where it's flowing right out of their landfill and into, uh, you know, a river, that makes perfect sense. But what are some of the ways that it's getting into groundwater? These are the aquifers underneath the ground that we pump, you know, wells out of. How does it get there? 
Sure. So there are uh, a lot of sources of PFAS in addition to the sites where they're being used or manufactured. Um, airports is actually a big one, as well as um, a lot of Department of Defense applications, military bases, because uh, the firefighting foams actually contain these chemicals in high concentrations. So when um, they are used on military bases or in, in firefighting training exercises, all of that foam just goes down the drain. I mean, if you can, you can see this on, you know, the, on the internet and videos of this just huge quantities of this PFAS containing foam uh, dumping out of the, these uh, gates to, you know, um, quash fires, which is, of course, uh, needed and necessary. Uh, but then it just slowly migrates its way away and ends up in the water. And since it doesn't go away, it doesn't break down, it just continues to seep into the ground, into the surface water, and eventually make its way into the groundwater. But there are other sources. There's a variety of sources. Um, PFAS can be found in a lot of consumer products, like food packaging, household products, even uh, personal care products, things like that. Um, some of the industries that use them, that's chrome plating, electronics manufacturing, oil recovery. And then once it's released, it just doesn't go away. So it's just a matter of time before it spreads and makes its way into the groundwater. Well, here's a question for you. If our listeners live in communities that have high levels of PFAS in their municipal water supply and, and no one in their local water agency knows or is even investigating the source of the contamination, what recourse do they have? Right. This is where this is such a big issue. We need people to take action. I know a lot of people feel like, well, I'm just one person, but altogether, you know, we're all we're all just one person, but altogether we can make a difference. So start calling, you know, call your local utility, your local elected officials, the EPA, let them know that you care. Find out what's going on in your community, whether any action has been taken, um, and if not, demand it. If, you know, if, if it is being taken, find out what's being done. Once we all, you know, we're together and we have a voice in our communities, once this becomes a bigger issue, people know that their communities care about this issue, they don't don't want it in their water, um, then that's when we can start expecting to see change. So it's time to get active and, and start voicing your concerns in your community. Love it. Now, we got to cover this because a lot of people who have the financial means will just say, you know what, I'll just buy bottled water and I don't have to care. I don't have to go to my city council meetings. I don't have to go to my water agency meetings. I don't have to be uh, engaged in civic affairs. I'll just buy bottled water. Is that enough? Mm -hmm. So, bottled water is not the answer. Uh, there's no government required for PFAS testing of bottled water either. And really, there's even less public information about the potential PFAS contamination of these water supplies that the manufacturers use for production of bottled water. And just one example, the uh, Massachusetts Department of Public Health actually put out an advisory about certain bottled water products. Uh, coming from a particular company, they had PFAS chemicals detected at levels that the Department of Public Health recommends not be consumed by people who are pregnant or breastfeeding or bottle-fed infants because it wasn't safe because it was so contaminated with PFAS. Um, some associations might require some testing, but it's, there's just not enough information. It's almost better to go with the uh, tap water that where there is a little bit more information. Um, there's a little more transparency in that process where, where possible. I mean, you know, we've hit on over and over again that 
not enough monitoring and not enough testing has been done, but there's even less information on bottled water. Um, and then, of course, you get into the issue of um, general water quality just outside of PFAS, right? So there could be contaminants in bottled water um, that are the same contaminants present in tap water. There's the issue of the plastic bottle itself, which is no good for the environment. Um, it's much more expensive. And you get the breakdown products from the plastic in addition to any contaminants that might be in the water. And um, of course, speaking from an advocacy point of view, it's mm-hmm. not fair to put the burden of fixing this problem and of water quality on the consumer because there are a lot of people who, um, outside of you know the, the issues I just mentioned, um, it's not a viable option. You know, it's, it's not fair fair to tell people to both pay for their tap water service and they have to go out and buy bottled water because uh, they can't, because uh, their, their tap water isn't safe to drink. That's just not fair um, on a national level, on a population level. So we need to have nationwide change. Agreed. Well said. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Sydney Evans of the Environmental Working Group. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And just in case you're only now tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Sydney Evans. She's a science analyst with the Environmental Working Group. Her undergraduate degree is in chemistry and her master's degree is in public health. And we're talking about PFAS and drinking water and what a 
nationwide big problem this is. We've established that it is terrible for human health, that it is uh, pretty much ubiquitous across the nation, and that uh, at this point, our our federal government hasn't set the kind of limits and and standards that would keep us safe. And many states are are doing their part. They're trying to create maximum contamination levels that that will keep their uh, state's residents healthy and safe. Um, But for those of us who do not live in a state that is doing that kind of work, Sydney, talk to us about what we can do at home. Do filters for at-home water use remove PFAS from tap water that's contaminated? Yeah, so I'm happy to talk about that, but I do want to plug real quick, like when we were talking about bottled water, um, EWG does not believe that the burden of removal of this uh, contamination from the water should be on consumers. So I just had to throw that out there. You know, we yep. need community and nationwide level change. But uh, in the meantime, this contamination is not going to go away overnight. So if there are people that are interested in trying to filter their water to protect themselves in the meantime, um, we do have some of the, the most Uh, recent information from state health agencies, testing labs, and scientific research, um, or even water companies, is the most effective choice for in-home treatment of PFAS-tainted tap water is going to be what's called reverse osmosis. Um, There is some evidence that an activated carbon filter, which is is much lower cost in most cases, um, can actually help some as well as long as these filters are maintained. That is absolutely crucial. Um, They're not going to do anything if you don't maintain them to the manufacturer's specifications. So those are options in the meantime. Of course, um, you know, choosing a filter is a very personal uh, decision. You you know, each family will have to decide what works best for them. Um, But to help with that, EWG, as part of their uh, tap water database, there is a built-in water filter guide. So if you want to go to ewg.org and navigate to the tap water database, you can see not only if there's any PFAS information, but also um, all of the contaminants that might be present in your drinking water system. And then at the bottom of each community water system page, there is a section that shows what uh, treatment technology is going to be most effective for those contaminants. And from there, you can go to the guide and learn more about the different filter types um, and how trying to help make that decision um, if that's something that's an option for you know, an individual family. Fantastic. And, and I can't thank you and, and the whole team at the Environmental Working Group enough for putting together such user-friendly information. I mean, you really do a tremendous service to all of us um, with the way that you have such complete and and constantly updated information. So I'm so grateful that you guys have these resources. You also have a free resource guide to help people avoid PFAS chemicals. Talk to us about some of the recommendations in that guide. Yeah, so that's um, a little pamphlet that shows people kind of what they can do in their day-to-day life. Um, Now, once again, I'll plug it, that we really need nationwide change and changes to regulatory practices. But in the meantime, people can, uh, I really want people to be aware of how ubiquitous PFAS is, not just contamination from drinking water in the air or whatever, but... um, where it is in consumer products. So uh, one of the major ways, uh, like we just discussed, is filtering water when necessary. Um, But there are a lot of consumer and commercial products that contain PFAS as well. Um, Some of the biggest 
ones are fast food wrappers and takeout containers. So, you know, that coating um, that keeps your greasy food from, from soaking through the paper, a lot of that uh, contains PFAS. Um, and of course, you know, avoiding fast food, I don't think that's going to be bad for anybody. Um, but uh, another one is uh, stain repellent treatments for furniture and carpets. A lot of times um, that's what PFAS is, is used for. That's why um, it became used so widely is because it makes these stain repellent, water repellent, grease repellent coatings um, that, are, that are effective for that purpose. But these chemicals are just, they're just not safe. Um, so anytime you see anything water repellent, stain repellent, uh, grease repellent, um, it's time to give it a second look to see whether it might um, have a PFAS as part of that um, makeup of the product. So, and that being said, a lot of outdoor gear um, that has the stain or water repellent tags, a lot of that is going to be treated with PFAS. Um, Non-stick pans, of course, everybody knows Teflon and the Teflon pans, but um, a lot of non-stick pans and kitchen utensils, if you have those, look for those that do not have PFTE. It usually will say on there somewhere, um, a lot of them will say PFTE-free or fluorine-free or fluoride-free or, um, excuse me, not fluoride, fluorine-free, and they won't have those... um, um, uh, chemicals, but uh, the safe bet is generally to opt for stainless steel or cast iron. If you're looking to upgrade your kitchen, um, I would veer away from the nonstick pans and, and utensils. Uh, yep. A lot of personal care products are going to have PFTE as well. Um, and I can plug real quick, uh, EWG also does a um, personal care product database to help people find safe personal care products. That's called Skin Deep. Um, so that might be helpful as well if people are looking to avoid these kinds of products. Um, sure. But I will say that... <laughs> sure, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just saying those are very helpful. I, I You guys are my go-to resource for that. Great. Um, Yeah, so, and I do want to mention that asking people to, uh, because PFAS is in so many things, asking people to um, take these steps to avoid PFAS contamination, there are definitely things that you can do, but that's a really heavy burden uh, for any person to take on. I mean, even for me, trying to find the right uh, personal care products or to check all my pots and pans and um, to question each piece of clothing I buy uh, or, you know, be, be sketched out by my, my raincoat because I'm not sure if it's been treated with PFAS. Mm-hmm. It's really a burden. Um, but in the meantime, it's important for these companies to be motivated to seek safer alternatives. And um, a great way to motivate them is to vote with your dollar and try, you know, let your companies know that your favorite brands that you don't want this in your, um, in your purchases. You don't want it in the things that you're buying. And then, you know, to, to look for alternatives when it's possible. But uh, really, we really need to focus on cleaning up the drinking water and the environment and getting these chemicals out of the environment. Absolutely. Now, you recently authored a peer-reviewed paper on the cumulative effects of contaminants in drinking water, and this is really the first study to use this approach. You conceived and designed the experiments, and I'd love for you to talk to us about the process of designing the experiments. Absolutely. So um, PFAS is a very concerning contaminant, but it's certainly not the only drinking water contaminant. So um, the, this, in this study, uh, we were looking to try and quantify cancer risk due to some drinking water contaminants. Uh, and this particular study, um, we first used this methodology, a small scale for a study in California, um, and then we applied it to data that we have on the entire United States. 
And we're able to do this with the tap water database because this is a database that EWG has built over the years by incorporating the water quality test data um, for water system compliance testing. So the current version that is available online contains 32 million water sample test results for community wow. water systems across the U.S. Yeah, so it's a huge data source. So we really wanted to use this um, to try and look at some of these health effects and what's actually going on nationwide. Um, and in a nutshell, we've used the data to compare the levels of carcinogenic contaminants um, currently in drinking water to the levels that epidemiology studies and experts say are safe. Because I think it might surprise some people that the legal levels of contaminants in drinking water are not necessarily what the latest science says is safe. Um, but from there, we're able to estimate the cancer risk that comes from drinking water with mixtures of these contaminants that we were looking at. Yep. And you and your team analyzed water quality profiles for, it says, 48,363 community water systems. And your methodology follows the, the same approach that was used in the National Air Toxics Assessment. Help us understand why both that sample and the methodology are so important to the efficacy of the study. Right. So the tap water database is an incredible resource because it allowed us to look at water quality profiles of the nation as a whole with specific data for each water system and then to estimate the cancer risk from community drinking water supplies across all 50 states. Um, and then the application of this cumulative risk methodology that comes from the National Air Toxics Assessment, um, it's the first application of this type of methodology that on a nationwide data set. Um, so a lot of these drinking water contaminants that we were studying, we were looking at, um, they're reviewed and regulated based on exposure to just one chemical at a time. But that's just not how we're exposed in daily life. Mm -hmm. Every time you take a sip of tap water, you're getting exposed to a, a number of contaminants. So our study um, and our analysis considers the additive effect of being exposed to all of those carcinogens in mixtures and the concentrations that we're actually seeing in tap water today. And I'm going to cherry pick one of the findings from your study because I live in California and this is the quote that I'm pulling from your findings. Cumulative cancer risk analysis for drinking water in all 50 states reflect greater water quality challenges faced by the states in the western part of the United States. The western part of the United States is also the region that generally receives lower annual precipitation and has greater water scarcity, end quote. So help us understand, Sydney, the significance of this finding for Americans in the Western U.S. Right. So water quality is complicated. It's an issue. There's a lot of challenges. Um, and then, uh, the, you know, water quality and cancer risk. Based on this analysis, it's going to vary from system to system and region to region. And when we looked at it on a state basis, we found that states in the West and Southwest generally had higher average cancer risks from drinking water. And so we asked, you know, well, why, why are we seeing this? Um, and so we looked at uh, uh, annual precipitation and um, the, the cancer risk levels that we estimated. And that correlation that we found was, of course, low rainfall and higher cancer risk. Um, and that's 
that's a complicated relationship, right? Like the lack of rain is not causing the cancer, Um, Mm. but it is correlated. It's underscoring how water quality is going to be impacted by water scarcity. So when we see these dry regions like in the Southwest, those drought conditions can concentrate contaminants in surface water sources, and then communities may be forced to use other sources of water with higher contaminant levels because it's the only viable source of water. So we start seeing these higher risks because of the unique challenges seen by that area of the United States. Wow, that's that's a heavy place to leave it for a quick commercial break, but we do have to take one. Don't go away, folks. We've got much more Go Green Radio right after this. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. Voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. We're talking about drinking water today. We started off talking about PFAS and drinking water. Uh, now we're talking about a study that Sydney Evans just co-authored, um, and she actually designed the study. And it's the first study of its kind to look at the cumulative impact, human health impact of all the various uh contaminants in drinking water. Um, As she mentioned during the last segment, a lot of studies will look at uh, each contaminant one at a time. What what happens when there's lead in the water? What happens when there's PFAS in the water? Those types of things. But she put together a study that that looks at the cumulative effects and gives us an idea of our cancer risk based on those cumulative effects. And Sydney, one of the findings from your study is that uh, the states with the highest cumulative cancer risk for groundwater are Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico. Talk to talk to us about why that's the case. Sure. So there are a lot of factors that can influence in an area's estimated cancer risk, um, as we as we found in this analysis. So one is um, uh, you see in that 
area in the southwest, you're going to see natural concentrations of arsenic are going to be much higher in the soil and bedrock, and that's going to end up in the drinking water. And arsenic is a potent carcinogen. Um, throughout the whole study, a large proportion of the cancer risk that we estimated was actually due to the, president of, or the presence of um, just arsenic. Uh, and then, of course, uh, as we discussed earlier, water scarcity forces communities to rely on less water, uh, less ideal water sources, um, which you're going to see in the southwest when they have this drier, arid conditions. And then um, across the U.S., and I'm sure in these states as well, the socioeconomic issues, so the cost of water treatment and water distribution, and you're going to see smaller communities uh, and community, communities with lower incomes struggle to fund water treatment facilities with the necessary staff and technologies to provide clean water. Um, now, I do want to note for this study, we only looked at 22 contaminants, and these are carcinogens only. This is a small proportion of all drinking water contaminants, or even it's not even an exhaustive list of uh, carcinogenic contaminants that are present in drinking water. Um, there are nitrates, there's PFAS, and things like that that weren't included in this study um, because they didn't meet the inclusion criteria. We needed um, a level against a benchmark to compare um, what level at which there was the health risk and then a large monitoring data set. So just because some of the other states um, didn't rank as high uh, as far as the cancer risk goes, um, that doesn't mean there aren't water quality issues. It just means um, for these particular contaminants, the, the risk wasn't as high. So there are other, um, of course, non-carcinogenic contaminants as well that could have a whole host of issues that are present in other states. Got it. That's an important point to make, and I'm glad that you mentioned that. This next finding kind of surprised me. Honestly, it said that the states with the highest cumulative cancer risks for surface water are Montana and Arizona. So sorry to everyone in Arizona. You made the list twice, but what is going on in Montana that contributes to these findings? So a lot of states that are going to have um, more surface water and higher risks, higher cancer risk due to surface water, uh, most likely the largest contributor to that cancer risk is going to be the presence of disinfection byproducts. So any uh, system using surface water is pretty much going to have to add disinfectants like chlorine um, to kill off any pathogens, and that is absolutely crucial. We have to have that, right? Um, but what happens is when disinfectants are added to the surface water, there are other contaminants present, and there's a lot of organic matter. So think uh, manure, vegetation, algae, runoff from farms and urban areas um, that's also going to be present. And those disinfectants, they're going to kill off the pathogens, but they're also going to have chemical reactions with the other things present in the water. And that's where you're going to get these disinfection byproducts. And these uh, byproducts have been linked to things like uh, bladder cancer. Um, and there's a lot of them, uh, a lot of different kinds, a handful of them are regulated, um, many more are not. And then which disinfection byproducts form depends on a lot of factors. Um, but because disinfection is so ubiquitous um, and it's used in all of these systems, uh, surface water systems that have high levels, uh, high concentrations of that organic matter are going to see higher levels of the disinfection byproducts. That's probably a pretty big contributor um, overall on the United States. Uh, the nationwide level, um, arsenic and disinfection byproducts accounted for more than 80% of the cancer risk that we estimated. So these are two really big issues. Um, and uh, arsenic is naturally occurring, so it's going to require some treatment, but 
fortunately, with uh, the disinfection byproducts, the, there's a bit easier answer, I guess. It depends on who you ask. But um, mm-hmm. if we protect source water, if we can keep the um, organic contaminants out of the source water, um, we can lower those levels of disinfection byproducts. So it's all about regulation and protecting source water. Yeah, uh, going to the root cause versus just treating the symptoms. Um, right. Not a bad idea in so many ways when it comes to public <laughs> health. <laughs> now, your overall conclusion um, in the report states, and I quote, um, state and national level cumulative cancer risks due to carcinogenic water contaminants are similar in magnitude to the risks reported for carcinogenic um, air pollutants. Help our listeners understand the significance of that conclusion, Sydney. Sure. So I think many people are aware of the risks of air pollution. So we've got smog, smoke, exhaust fumes, uh, diesel fumes, things like that, especially in urban environments. And people are, I think, more acutely aware of the negative impacts of that kind of pollution, um, the exposure to it, and then the risks that it presents. So what some people may be even shocked to find out is that our analysis estimates that the risk from cancer from drinking water over a lifetime, uh, legal treated drinking water is on the same order of magnitude nationally as that risk of cancer from air pollution. Um, a lot of people, myself included, for the longest time, um, take drinking water for granted. We assume that it's monitored, that it's treated, and it carries no risk. But based on the latest science and the research of exposure to these contaminants, that's just not the case. Yeah. And, and so... You know, what should we be doing? What actions should our listeners be taking in order to get involved and and address these issues? Kind of stick up for our tap water. We can't live without it. Right. I mean, it's the same thing as with PFAS. For all of these things, what we really need is more protection of our source water and uh, stricter regulations on water quality. A lot of these... um, the, the legal limits for some of these contaminants, uh, they haven't been revised in, for, in some cases, in decades. And the science has come a long way since then. So that discrepancy between what's legal and what's safe um, is a pretty big gap in some places. So a lot of these regulations need to be re-reviewed. Um, I think people just need to start reaching out at the local level um, or even at the, at the national level with their representatives to let them know, like, hey, you know, this, this is not okay okay, we need to, (laughs) I don't want these contaminants in my water, and what are we doing to improve water quality uh, and protect source water? So there are, you know, a a number of things, and and just letting your local community know and your your water supplier and your elected official know that this is an issue you care about, that it's not okay, and that we need to make changes, uh, both to protect source water and to clean up the water um, as it is now at at the water treatment facility. Well said. I, I couldn't put it better. In the in the final moments that we have left in the show, Sydney, I want to give you a chance to leave any parting thoughts or uh, any actions, anything that you'd like to leave with our listeners. Yeah, so EWD's goal is to ultimately protect public health. We want people to be aware of these issues and health risks and that they exist 
today um, at the levels that are present in water today and that the current laws and regulations are just not health protective enough. Um, so we're working to empower people. EWG provides the resources like the Tap Water Database uh, and the uh, PFAS map and uh, publicly available peer-reviewed studies so that people can inform themselves and then use that information to take action in their communities. And all of these resources, uh, links to the papers, the Tap Water Database and all of that is available at EWG. Thank you so much, Sydney. It was just such a pleasure having you on the show. Come back anytime. And that goes for anyone at the EWG team. We're so glad uh, to have you on Go Green Radio and so thankful for all the resources that you make so easily available to all of us at EWG.org. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. I'm glad you were with us today. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.